to a Middle East Institute public event. Uh, my name is Clemens, Clemens Che, and I'm a research fellow at the Institute. Today we'll be focusing on the call, uh, the new book launched by and written by Critical Varagu, who's here with us today, um, on Saudi Arabia's role in the rise of fundamentalist Islamist movements around the globe and how Saudi money has actually changed uh, across different parts of the world. Um, so before we begin, um, I'll go through a few housekeeping rules and also the bio for Kritika. Um, so if we are going to do, do it this format, so what we're going to do is we will start off with uh, opening remarks by Kritika, an introduction on her book and also how um, the Saudi Dahua, the call to Islam, and how it works, how proselytization works from the kingdom. And this will be followed by a few questions from the floor. And then we'll move into a discussion on the Indonesian case, followed by questions again. And then we'll put Nigeria and Kosovo case studies together, and then the wider questions at the end. So we'll put uh, a bigger window at the end for everyone to who are, who's interested to put forward your questions to Kritika. And we'll try to leave about half an hour. So in total, we're going to have about one and a half hours for this book discussion. So Kritika is an award-winning American journalist and has been the Indonesia correspondent for The Guardian and a National Geographic explorer and ex contributor to many publications, to name a few, The Atlantic, Financial Times, Foreign Affairs. Um, her work has been supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, uh, the International Women's Media Foundation, and more. She's also a Harvard grad and was a Fulbright Scholar at SOAS. So, before we begin, um, the housekeeping rules also include, if you want to put forward a question, you can either do it two ways. One is to put it across in the chat box that you have on Zoom. Or when we have our questions open to the floor, you can also use the raise hand function and our events team will unmute you and you can put forward your question, whichever you're comfortable with. So right now, please let us welcome Kritika Varagu. Your reporting on the diversity and uh, the results of Saudi Dawa has been very fascinating. I've read your book. Uh, so let us begin with, uh, with a thumbnail sketch of how you actually develop an interest, how the interest was generated into writing this book. Kritika, over to you. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to speak to, um, to you guys um, in Singapore. Obviously, we wish we could have been in person, but such a great crowd um, regardless. Um, so I moved to Indonesia in 2016 um, from New York and um, I bought a one-way plane ticket to Jakarta and I was very interested in religion and politics uh, in the world's largest Muslim majority country. Um, and when I moved there, I found a lot of religion and a lot of politics to report on. Um, one of the big stories that was happening right when I moved there, which would be familiar, I think, to a lot of people here, is um, the Ahok trial, uh, where the Chinese Christian governor of Jakarta was tried for blasphemy. There were huge protests in Jakarta, thanks to 
this kind of um, guerrilla Islamist group called the Islamic Defenders Front. Um, so as soon as I started reporting on that and into the background of that and the the man who led it, um, Habib Razik Shahab, I started to learn about this kind of whispered about phenomenon called Arabisasi in Bahasa Indonesia, or this idea of Arabization, um, or this basically concept that Saudi influence had somehow changed um, and, and according to many people, corrupted the religious traditions of Indonesia. Um, and this was a really interesting discourse to me. I wasn't really sure what it meant for a while, um, but it was certainly familiar to me as an American because it was also something batted about often in America where I spent most of my life growing up and as an adult under the so-called war on terror. And the most, one of the most important things that took up the majority of you know, front page headlines and national security agendas was this question of you know, so-called Islamic terrorism. And again, because of all the reporting on this, there was this idea that Saudi money had seeded this terrorism. Infamously, 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers were uh, Saudi nationals. So I was really interested. I'd moved half completely across the world um, and I was hearing the same kind of line. So I decided to start reporting on what Saudi money really did in Indonesia, which is the world's largest Muslim majority country. Um, and what I found was actually really interesting. It was very subtle and complex. Uh, what I found was this six decades long campaign that started with a very specific personal relationship between King Faisal of Saudi Arabia and uh, Muhammad Natsir, who was one of Indonesia's founding fathers. Um, they formed a very close personal relationship through which Saudi money started flowing into Indonesia, funding all kinds of things from mosques to scholarships to um, Qurans in translation and in Arabic to other kinds of books to local charities uh, to pondok uh, pesantrens and madrasas and boarding schools. Um, to even a completely fully-fledged Saudi university in Jakarta called Lithia that was overseen by the Saudi embassy and where the classes were conducted entirely in Arabic. And the diversity of this campaign and the fact that it had had such a you know, concerted um, personal relationship at the heart of it was all super interesting. I started reporting on it and immediately there was a real hunger for this. I think in the media, I got like an unusually large response to these articles that I would write about Saudi soft power in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. And over time, I also started um, reporting on the same thing in deep South Thailand, where there's a Malay Muslim insurgency um, in Malaysia, and uh, you know, also looking at the phenomenon in places like Singapore. Um, so the idea of this Saudi soft power, which seeded so many different kinds of effects in Southeast Asia became kind of like um, an issue I returned to time and again. Eventually, I, I learned through the course of reporting this that it wasn't just in all of these Southeast Asian countries, um, but it was really a global campaign. And I felt the only, only way to do justice to that kind of project was to write a book that was global in scope. So that was where I came up with the idea for and the, the structure of my book, The Call, which looks at what the Saudi soft power campaign really did in three very different countries, all outside of the Middle East, all Muslim majority democracies, 
um, on three different continents. So the countries I looked at were Indonesia, Nigeria, and Kosovo. Indonesia was a no-brainer for me because I've been living there for a long time. And in fact, I lived there up until March when I went back to America due to coronavirus. Um, Nigeria seemed to me somewhat like a counterpart to Indonesia in the sense that it was this huge, massive post-colonial nation, the most populous country on its continent, home to this massive population of Muslims um, who were also somewhat open to the educational opportunities and charity um, uh, outreach done by Saudi Arabia in the 20th century. And then for my third case, I picked Kosovo. I really wanted to look at somewhere in Europe where the post-colonial thing was not really a factor, but nevertheless, there were a lot of other interesting dynamics. In Kosovo's case, it was a post-war dynamic. So um, Kosovo is a country that came out of the dissolution of the Yugoslavia in the late 1990s. Saudi charities were among the first to provide aid during and after the war, and they really implanted Salafism in almost record time there. It was the last major um, eruption of kind of Saudi charity and Saudi aid before 9-11, because 9-11 really changed everything for them and for their public image. So I thought these three case studies from three very different continents made a, made a compelling kind of grouping um, and that's, that's where, that's how my book came together. Yeah. Thank you for the introduction. Very fascinating because I read your book and so many anecdotes. And even though you, you cite, you use Indonesia, Nigeria, and Kosovo as your case studies, you also put in exceptions in each country that there are, there are cases where, you know, the Saudi Dawah didn't exactly pan out as they would hope to be. Mm -hmm. um, but my first, my first question and the follow-up question would be, you, you, you listed Wahhabism in your book as a more site-specific fundamentalist movement and you, you drew a line between Wahhabism and Salafism in that sense, uh, it, especially in the manifestation in Saudi foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And I quote in your book, you said, this manifestation actually is like throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. Could you, could you describe a bit more about this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the main things I tried to get across in my book, just a big theme, is that like, although it sounds so nefarious sometimes, the way we talk about Saudi money and Arabi Sasi and Petro Islam, it's, it's often not the case that there was this like big schematic um, totalizing ideology behind what they did. It was more of this kind of loose campaign along the lines of kind of America's Cold War propaganda, I think is a good comparison. There was a whole range of things that they supported, often things that were completely opposed to each other, um, from apolitical Salafis to Muslim Brotherhood-inspired political parties. So, um, you know, I, I think it's important to know that there were a lot of places that this proselytization came from, and that's why it had so many different and diverse effects. In terms of Wahhabi versus Salafi, I'm really glad you picked up on that. Um, without getting too much into the weeds, Wahhabism is the state religion of Saudi Arabia. It was founded in the late um, 18th century by a desert preacher named Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab, 
who um, had a very austere conception of monotheism and thought that a lot of things he saw around him that Muslims were doing, like going to graves and worshiping saints and things like that were really unacceptable and deviated from the true Islam. So he set about trying to correct them often through violent means. He had kind of like this band of marauders who, and he, who he authorized to even kill in the name of correcting their path towards the true Islam. So in the late 18th century, he signed a pact with the Royal House of Saud, the Saudi royal family, where he promised to give um, religious legitimacy for their family's conquest of the Arabian Peninsula if they in turn protected him, his sect, and adopted his approach as the state religion of Saudi Arabia. So that pact has been in place for three centuries and is still in place today. But Wahhabism, as, as you pointed out, um, and as I try to emphasize in my book, is very site-specific to Saudi Arabia because it really revolves around this dynamic between the Wahhabi clerics in the kingdom their relationship to the Saudi royal family and this kind of push-pull that they always have. So Wahhabism, which advocates uh, obedience to the Saudi royals, almost makes no sense outside of Saudi Arabia, which is why when we talk about countries outside the Gulf, um, like Indonesia, for example, what Saudi soft power really produced was not Wahhabism. It's not that Indonesians feel any allegiance to the House of Saud. It produced more like transnational Salafism. So Salafism is a distinct um, ideology or movement that came out of early 20th century Egypt. It was an anti-colonial mov uh, movement. It was a reaction to Western imperialism, where some of these thinkers like um, Abdu and Rida um, thought that the only way for Muslims to move forward was not to liberalize or become more Western, but to look back to the first three generations of Muslims, the Salaf. So Salafism is this movement to return to these earliest Muslim practices, and they're marked by kind of distinctive ways of acting and dressing. Um, a lot of Salafi men you would recognize um, for wearing short pants above their ankles, in recognition of an obscure hadith that uh, when judgment day comes, the flames of hell will lick those who wear long pants. Um, so, you know, the effects of Saudi power that I talk about are often creating Salafi communities and not Wahhabi communities. It's very rare that you're gonna find any Muslim who describes themselves as a Wahhabi. It's usually used as an insult. Yeah, thank you. Um, and since we're still on the um, aspect of you know, Saudi Dahwa. Um, can you explain the role of, of various royal personalities, which you also mentioned in your book, uh, especially I think two of, two of whom are King Faisal and King Fahad. How important were they in actually spreading the, the Salafis doctrine or spreading the Saudi doctrine across the globe? Yeah, they were definitely the two most important monarchs for this project. Um, Saudi Arabia is a young country. It only came together in 1932. And King Faisal took the throne in 1965. And he was really the first globally-minded monarch. Um, before him, the kings of Saudi Arabia were focused on things like creating government ministries or balancing the budget. It was really such a new and young country. And although oil had been discovered in 1938, it was not, not yet this, like, flush with oil wealth that it, as it would become only in the 1970s. So they were really concerned with the small things of state building more than projecting their power abroad. King Faisal changed all that. He was very globally minded and he came of age 
um, at this really interesting time when a lot of new countries were coming into the world stage from Asia and Africa after World War II, after decolonization. And um, it was also a time when these countries were trying to imagine what their future would look like. So there was the famous Bandung Conference, of course, in Indonesia, where a lot of post-colonial leaders from, um, from Nehru to Sukarno to, uh, to Nasser, uh, all came together and tried to imagine this new future for third world countries, as they used to call themselves, which would, for the most part, found their identities mostly on like liberal values and pluralism more than any specific religion. Um, so King Faisal um, pushed against these currents. And in a way, in my opinion, he won. Even, the, you know, King Faisal attended the Bandung Conference in Indonesia, and he was not like, uh, he was not a first-rate attendee. He was considered like a weirdo from the gov wearing this like robe. And everyone was like, the future belongs to these other people like Sukarno. He's so modern. He's so future-minded. But it turned out that King Faisal's um, vision to channel some of these post-war currents into personal piety and an Islamic identity and this transnational Islamic identity instead of these national identities proved very powerful in the end. Um, so King Faisal had an idea of Islamic foreign policy driven by Al-Tadamun al-Islami or Islamic solidarity and he's the one who oversaw some of the really big international Saudi charities that are still in place today, like the Muslim World League um, and the World, Asse World Assembly of Muslim Youth. And these are these, these very big multinational charities headquartered in the kingdom with um, offices all over the world. And he also oversaw, you know, creation of the, uh, the Organization of Islamic Countries and so on. So it was really this idea of building this transnational Muslim identity led by Saudi Arabia and going against something like Nasser's Arab socialism or pan-Arabism and things like that. So they really wanted Islam to be the main identity um, of, of these new nations. So King Faisal was a main proponent of Dawah and also um, he got lucky because in 1973, the Arab-Israeli war happened Nasser, his main rival for supremacy or ideological leadership of the Muslim world was taken out, he lost. And then the, um, the oil embargo took place in 1973. So the oil revenue of Saudi Arabia just exploded, just billions of dollars. So he finally had the means to support his big dreams for Al-Tadamun al-Islami, and he did just that. He is the one who opened the taps from the kingdom to Muhammad Natsir in Indonesia, creating many of the organizations that are still there today. Um, he was succeeded by King Fahad, who is another very important um, uh, agent of Saudi Dawah. He was actually known like when he was a prince as a playboy and one of those kind of lavish Gulf Royals like international lifestyle private jets and all that. But once he became king he took his responsibility for projecting piety pretty seriously and they were also spooked by the Iranian revolution which had happened in 1979 and the takeover of the Grand Mosque in Mecca which also happened in 1979. So this was you know the 1980s um, King Fahad realized he really had to project piety in the kingdom and abroad. So he gave a pretty loose rein to the Wahhabi clerics inside the kingdom. And he, you know, funded quite a lot of lavish Dawah projects. He founded his um, King Fahad complex for printing the Quran, which until this day prints the Quran in dozens of languages um, with Saudi commentaries that are shipped all around the world. So Faisal and Fahad's names, you'll still see to this day, are on buildings and institutions and books all around the Muslim world.
Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I'm glad you mentioned about the charities such as the Muslim World League and the World Association of Muslim Youth. Um, since the 9-11 incident, two aspects of Saudi Dahua has been zoomed in and magnified on. It's terror finance, as you mentioned in, in your remarks earlier, and also on textbooks. But you later mentioned in your book that, you know, um, religious diplomacy actually plays a huge role um, in, 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 you know, disseminating the Saudi doctrine. And one of the most influential cases lies in Indonesia uh, at the Saudi embassy over there where you, you met up with the religious attache uh, previously. And the funding that goes to Indonesia runs to the tune of 27 billion, as you, as you mentioned in your book. But how do you see the breakdown of the funds? Which, where does the money go? You know, in, in which aspects and which areas and what's, what's impact as like in general? So I, I don't think we've ever had a precise number of dollars flowing into Indonesia. Um, we've had some estimates, which is that during King Fahd's reign from 1982 to 2002, there was an estimate that they spent a billion dollars total during that time on global dawah. But the thing about Saudi financial inflows and outflows is that they're pretty opaque and they don't have the responsibility to report them to anyone because it kind of flows directly into the royals' coffers. So we do have to take a lot of these numbers with a grain of salt. That's unlikely, in my opinion, we're ever going to get concrete numbers on this. But um, in terms of Indonesia, where does the money go? Um, early on, a lot of it definitely went to Dewan Dakwa Islamia Indonesia, or DDII, which is the organization founded by Mohammed Natsir, the first prime minister of Indonesia, who was later pushed out of government and exiled because he had a different kind of vision for the future than what Sukarno and so on wanted, uh, which was something more Islamist in nature. So he founded this organization called DDII, which got this Tazkia or letter of recommendation from Saudi and received all kinds of um, donations. So DDII went on to support the building of numerous mosques, at least 150 mosques, um, several boarding schools, including Pondok Pesantra and Nuruki in, in Solo and Central Java, um, and had a lot of preachers on its payroll. Um, the religious attache, who the one I met was named Saad Namase. He has an office in Menteng in central Jakarta, which is completely separate from the Saudi embassy, Jazan Jalan Rasuna Sayyid. And uh, it's like, it's a very large, like neoclassical mansion. Um, and he's, he was very cagey about what they did. But he, he also supports, um, you know, a variety of Islamic um, affairs loosely in, in Indonesia from printing Qurans and holding Quran competitions to holding Ramadan iftars and also they had this kind of attache core of preachers which I learned about these dai or missionaries um, where they would find promising young graduates of Islamic universities and especially Saudi university graduates train them and then dispatch them to all the 34 provinces of Indonesia to start up their own Saudi funded Islamic centers. This was a really, I mean, this was really like forward thinking and complex and vast project. Um, and, and I think even the governor of North Maluku today, if I'm not wrong, used to be one of these dais. Um, and, you know, yeah, they were really looking all over Indonesia, not just Java, but also in, in Maluku. And as I write in my book, they even support Papua Dakwa, which is this kind of yeah. interesting development where um, Papua, as you might know, is a contested 
far eastern two provinces, the two far eastern provinces of Indonesia, um, populated mostly by ethnic Melanesians. And there has been this recent project in the last decade or two to proselytize Islam there. And we know from social media and from, from the Saudi embassy website that the embassy has supported Papua Dakwa, both in terms of boarding school, Islamic boarding schools that cater to Papua students in Java and supporting preachers who, um, who preach in Papua, like Ustad Fadlan. So I think this is a really interesting testament to how broad their vision is, even to this day, within Indonesia. Sure. Sure. Thank you. Um, just one more question from me before we open the floor to a few questions and then carry on into the Indonesian case study. Mm -hmm. So my question is really on the U.S. role. Uh, I think you mentioned there was a peak phase of U.S.-Saudi harmony during the Soviet-Afghan war and by the 80s with Western support. Um, Saudi, you know, the Saudi doctrine actually displaced Arab nationalism. And how has this U.S. Saudi relationship changed over the years since then? Um, it's a great question. And, and undoubtedly, U.S. support during the Cold War was essential to the success of the Saudi Dawa project. Um, during the 70s and 80s, the U.S. saw Saudi attempts to support um, kind of fundamental Islam worldwide as going hand in hand with America's own anti-communist efforts. Um, it was a time of which Henry Kissinger famously wrote, everywhere he looked in um, these contested anti-communist theaters like Somalia or Egypt, he would find a helpful Saudi footprint. So um, they really, uh, for, for their own reasons, really opposed communism in all its theaters around the world and worked in, at times in concert to do this. Um, so the high point of their cooperation, no doubt, was the Afghan Jihad. Um, it started in 1979 when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. The Saudi and um, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Um, agreed to match each other's contributions dollar for dollar to the tune of billions of dollars to support the Afghan Mujahideen, which are the guerrilla forces that were fighting the Soviet Union. And the Afghan Jihad became this like um, international, this truly international jihad, um, where foreign fighters from all over the Islamic world felt compelled to join their um, brothers in fighting against these godless communists. And this includes many many people from Indonesia. I've met several uh, Afghan alumni, so to speak, that's what they call themselves, who fought as Mujahideen and came back to Indonesia. And the Afghan theater, which was the peak of this Cold War era cooperation between the US and Saudi Arabia, would have ripple effects all over the world. Um, the masterminds of the Bali bombings and, and Jamaat Islamiyah in Indonesia who spent a lot of time, for example, in the Afghan jihad. So it became this kind of crucible of international transnational jihadism. And it was fully backed um, in equal parts by Saudi and the US. Sure, thank you. Um, right now we will open the floor to a couple of questions. Uh, and if you'd like to ask a question, please type in the chat or raise your hand. Right, we've got a first question. I've got it in via the chat from Salman Bokhari. Uh, we have, yes, his question is, what role did Nadatul Ulama play in Indonesia and were they receptive to Saudi money? Did it help the NU presidents coming to power in the 90s? 
Um, that's a really good question because like NU was actually founded in the 1920s in reaction to perceived Wahhabi inroads in Indonesia. And NU was actually, they, they had this in, in the early 20th century, before Indonesia was even a country, they had this committee on the Hijaz where they um, tried to protect some of the heritage monuments of the Hijaz, the region in Saudi Arabia that includes Mecca and Medina. So um, the the so-called traditionalist establishment in Indonesia has always defined itself in opposition, or not always, has, has long defined itself in opposition to, um, to Saudi Islam. Um, but in terms of mounting, mounting a um, counter movement to, to Saudi style Islam, my opinion is that NU has not been very successful at that, um, in part because they had such entrenched traditional authority, especially in Java with the Kiais and other traditional Islamic leaders, that they have never really been able to explain exactly what it is that they stand for. Um, you know, more recently, since 2015, they've tried to push this thing called Islam Nusantara or Islam of the Archipelago, but it's been rife with infighting and they cannot really decide what it means. Definitely not in opposition to Saudi style Islam, which really does know what it stands for. It has like a very small and serious corpus of texts uh, from Wahhab's Book of Monotheism to Ibn Taymiyyah to Bin Baz that are accessible to everyone and translated into almost every language. So in, in, in opposition to that, NU has never really been able to articulate what exactly it does stand for. And one thing that complicates NU's response is that they're not progressive per se. A lot of NU members and even Kiais are, are exactly as anti-Shia as Saudi affiliated Salafis. So when you have so many overlaps, it's really hard for them to push back um, robustly against this kind of Saudi style Salafism. Yeah, and we have a follow-up from Salman again. Uh, the, were, was the NU actually receptive to Saudi, Saudi money and did they help did it help in President Habibi's coming to power? Um, I don't know about President Habibi specifically. I think NU has not really needed Saudi money for the most part, but I wouldn't doubt that many people who affiliated themselves with NU ended up attending Libya, for example. Um, Ulil Abshar Abdallah is like a good example. He's from a very traditional Javanese family from Pati and Jawatanga. And he attended Libya just because they offered a scholarship and he was a good student. So I think there are a lot of people who are involved in the Saudi Dawa project who are not committed one way or the other. And there's definitely a lot of overlap somewhere like in Sure. A second question from John Ber Baronets here. I hope I got your name right. Uh, he asks if after the murder of journalists like Khashoggi and so on, do you see any reform coming up? And do you think this could weaken Saudi's weight in the global economy or things will remain the same? Um, things are definitely not remaining the same. Um, you know, I, I think the Khashoggi affair was was a disaster, PR-wise, for Saudi Arabia. Um, I don't think that the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi affects the Dawah project directly, but it, it is true that Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, the reformist prince, has expressed a strong desire to change the public image of Saudi Arabia. Um, and he's, it's very obvious that he's sensitive about Saudi reputation um, for spreading terrorism worldwide. And in Vision 2030, his 
blueprint for economic modernization, only one of the 13 listed priorities have anything to do with religion, and that's the one relating to Hajj and Umrah. Um, he's also made statements uh, in, in Western media saying things like, we're going to stamp out extremist Islam within uh, a generation. We're returning to Wasatia, the middle path, and um, he's made a lot of showy arrests of Wahhabi clerics. Uh, even in Libya, the Saudi University in Jakarta, that is now carpeted in Vision 2030 banners and MBS's face is all over Libya now. Um, so there's this definitely desire to make some changes. It's obvious that he's more sensitive about um, Saudi Arabia's image than any Saudi royal before him. Um, at the same time, he's, he's no defender of human rights, it's obvious from the Khashoggi affair, and also from the fact that the clerics he's been jailing in Saudi are not necessarily the most intolerant Wahhabis, but the ones who refuse to fall in line with his, with his agenda, because he's, you know, um, he's really keen on consolidating power, and that means taking it away from the Wahhabi establishment. So I think that it's a mixed bag. There's a lot of cosmetic changes happening. Some of them are quite positive, um, but, yeah, I mean, Jamal Khashoggi happened. Um, Saudi Arabia's war on Yemen has also been quite bad for its image in the Muslim world. There have been imams in places like Libya and Tunisia who have called on Muslims to boycott the Hajj, which is such a crazy ask for one of the five pillars of Islam, but such, such is the effect of their campaign in Yemen. So there's been a lot of things that happened in recent years that have decreased Saudi Arabia's standing in the Muslim world. And you know, Khashoggi is just one of many. Oh, thank you. We'll take one more question and then we'll go into the um, Indonesian case. And we've got one from Omar Alatas. How much of the Saudi influence is decentralized and heavily localized within local heroes and champions? And how much is still strategic and centrally driven? Um, that's a great question. And I, I think, and I think it's the main theme of my book that it's heavily decentralized. I think it was probably most centralized in the 1960s when King Faisal had a very strong personal imprint on a lot of Saudi dawah and, his, and he was the face of a lot of Saudi dawah. I think now it's been, it's been very much diversified and there's, you know, there's religious attaches like the one in Indonesia in about two dozen countries. And one thing that project has been very good at is identifying local partners on the ground and adapting to local contexts. Thank you. Hope that answers everyone's questions so far. Um, we'll move into the Indonesian case and I'll combine my first question on, on, on the Indonesian case study with one of our questions from the listeners. It's, 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 it's on the same frequency anyway. Um, so, in your chapter that you began on, on Indonesia, you talked about the decades leading up to Indonesia's independence from the Dutch. And you talked about uh, returning pilgrims, establishing conservative Muslim organizations, such as the Persatuan Islam and Muhammadiyah. And you, you put a disclaimer there that you know, these early groups were not funded by, by the kingdom. But at the same time, what, what struck me was, you know, the importance of the Hajj because these were returning pilgrims from Saudi Arabia. So what is really the impact still today on, of the Hajj on the spread of Saudi doctrine in Indonesia today? And that's one. And coming from our listener, after decades of funding in the Southeast Asian region, what has the kingdom learned about the region? So it's, um, the, it's two yeah. ways. 
Both very interesting questions. I mean, the Hajj, um, as you rightly seized on, is, is so important to to this project. Um, Hajj and Umrah, both of the pilgrimages. I mean, the interpersonal exchange of people inside the kingdom has been key to disseminating Saudi power in a way that even I didn't realize until I really got deep into the bowels of this research. Um, it's, it's obvious that going to Saudi and being exposed to these ideas had a powerful pull on many generations of Indonesian Muslims. Um, and, and even once the, uh, the Imam of the Grand Mosque in Mecca was from Banten, so it was an Indonesian. Um, so there was this long two-way flow, but obviously it used to be a more elite activity to do Hajj than it is now where just hundreds of thousands of people can do Umrah or Hajj. So it's, the volume of interactions has increased. Um, but I think that the interpersonal aspect is so important, not just in Indonesia, but also in Nigeria, where a lot of Nigerian scholars were handpicked in the 1960s to go and study in Medina. And Medina, um, by the way, is home to this really unique university called the Islamic University of Medina that was founded in 1962 um, that was explicitly oriented towards the, the outside world. It was supposed to be this international university for missionaries. It was a Dawah university. And it did that job so well. Um, IUM attracted students from all three countries that I wrote about, Indonesia, um, Nigeria and Kosovo and many, many more. And it was super, um, it was super international, even in the administration of it. One of its first presidents was a Nigerian, uh, which is just really forward thinking um, in terms of seeding the Dawah. And it was this in-person contact that allowed, you know, someone like Muhammad Natsir to figure out who to pick as his deputy and his right-hand man, or um, Natsir's counterpart in Nigeria, a, a guy called Abu Bakr Gumi. He really spent a lot of time in the kingdom picking and choosing the people who would lead the key instruments of Saudi Dawah in Nigeria. So the inter interpersonal interaction in the kingdom was important, remains important to this day. As you all might know, Habib Rizik is still in Mecca. Um, he had a lot of contacts from his time studying there. And once the Indonesian police tried to arrest him, he fled back there. Um, and this also briefly and kind of amusing parallel in Nigeria, where the founder of Boko Haram, Muhammad Yusuf, briefly fled Nigerian authorities and went to Saudi Arabia. So, you know, you can't overestimate the importance of the physical gathering place and the intellectual environment of the kingdom. Obviously, COVID-19 has put kind of a pause in all of that. Uh, and I wrote an article for Foreign Affairs on how that might affect the project going forward. But the fact remains, at least for the 20th century, um, these interpersonal exchanges were so important. And for Indonesia specifically, the Hajj quota is a for forever a top line item on the diplomatic relationship between Indonesia and Saudi. Um, it's a huge, you know, it's the biggest it has the biggest quota in the world, about 220,000 people, and it's still not nearly enough. Um, people in Indonesia wait up to 20 years sometimes to get their chance to go on Hajj. There's always people, as anyone who's ever been to the airport in Jakarta knows, there's always people going Umrah, huge, huge, huge planes of people. So increasing that quota has always been this kind of like, um, Trump card and Saudi's relationship with Indonesia where like Indonesia can never seriously criticize Saudi too much because if they jeopardize the Hajj quota that would be politically disastrous for whoever is the president at that time. Um, and can you remember the second question? What did Saudi Arabia learn about Southeast Asia? In terms of what, what did Saudi Arabia learn about the Southeast Asian region uh, through its funding programs over the decades? I'm not convinced that they learned a whole lot, frankly. Um, but w one thing that is interesting, according to the Dawah Ministry documents, is that Saudi has, has shifted its material funding um, 
from Indonesia to the Philippines in terms of the greatest recipient of Sari Dawa today. So I suspect, and I've, I've read anecdotally, although I haven't been there, that Saudi um, charities are doing a lot of work in the southern Philippines, especially after the siege of Marawi, which I think is just interesting insofar as it shows how they adapt to the political situation always, and they figure out who needs more help at a given time. Like, there's no immediate crisis situation in Asia right now, so why would they put a lot of resources there? So it's, it's always evolving. Um, as to whether this filters back into the kingdom, I'm going to guess not that much. Yeah. Okay, and that question was from Jamie Davidson, just to acknowledge the person who put forward the question. Um, my next question, really, since you mentioned about the, uh, the influence of the Islamic University of Medina, the IUM, mm -hmm. whose an alumni have become, you know, leading Salafi voices, Islamist politicians and preachers, you know, how, how does this missionary university, you know, how has this missionary university influenced Southeast Asian communities and politics and how does it compare with, you know, more with the, with the likes of more traditional and illustrious universities like the Al-Azhar in, in, in Cairo? Yeah, so like numbers wise, Al-Azhar obviously has way more representation. Uh, you know, thousands of students every year go to Al-Azhar. Um, the difference between Al-Azhar and IUM is that um, Al-Azhar is much less ideologically coherent. It's such a big university, and, and, and for those of you who don't know, it's like basically the oldest university in the Islamic world, and it's incredibly prestigious. But it has like such a diversity of faculties that you don't need to necessarily, um, there's no specific canon at Al-Azhar in the sense that there is one at IUM, where whatever fiqh you learn, right, they do teach all kinds of jurisprudence there, but you are going to definitely read Wahhab's Book of Tawheed, you're definitely going to read Ibn Taymiyyah, there's like a more of like an ideological bent in IUM, and there's also this kind of the prestige of studying in the place that the birthplace of Islam, um, which I think is different from Al Azhar. So the the IUM, I mean IUM is an outsized impact for the number of students it educates. Um, I, uh, the found, you know, the president of PKS, the Prosperous Justice Party, the most successful Islamist party in Indonesia, that Nur Wahid studied there, um, and and quite a lot of other. Islamist figures in Indonesia have studied there as well because of the scholarships regime that was um, seated by um, Muhammad Natsir back in the 60s. Yeah, and while we're on Muhammad Natsir, you describe his central role in seeding the Saudi influence in your book when actually there was no formal diplomatic relationship with the kingdom. So how was this Saudi-Indonesian ties, how were these ties restored? after Nazis' in intervention? Um, so he, he was, you know, after his exile to the jungle and banishment from politics, he decided we will do preaching instead of politics. So he started from this grassroots level and because he had such, oh, by the way, um, I've described this in my book, but there was a diplomatic incident where like Indonesian police went to the ambassador's residence without a reason and searched his house near Bogor without a warrant and then he, fled and then broke off diplomatic ties with Indonesia. So this was the state of affairs between these two countries in the early 1960s before Muhammad Nasser stepped in. But basically he became so, um, he had such a strong connection with King Faisal, he would later receive the King Faisal Prize, that he was able to almost single-handedly uh, revive diplomatic ties and they started instating ambassadors again. But it's important to know that like a lot of Nasser's work was happening during the Soharto dictatorship. So it was really happening on 
a grassroots level outside of organized and formal politics. So the dawah that Dewan Dawah Islamia Indonesia was doing was happening kind of outside organized political structures, which at that point was like a military military dictatorship. So they were, you know, um, doing a lot of reading circles and mosques and, and organizing in, in quite large numbers. But the, the impact of their spread was not obvious until 98, when the public sphere finally opened up. And that's why it seems sometimes like Indonesia became so conservative so fast after 98. It's been called like the conservative turn. But it's not that it changed overnight, just that in some in some ways that the public sphere became much more crowded when this authoritarian government disbanded. Yeah. And part of the influence that seeped in into Indonesia involves, you know, the, the construction of the Lipia, as you, as you mentioned before, the Islamic and Arabic College of Indonesia, which is really a brick and mortar, you know, university that was set up by, by the Saudis as a means of also channeling, you know, the kingdom's anti-Shia agenda. So where is it today in terms of its activities? You know, how much influence does it still hold today in Indonesia? Um, so Libya, in a kind of typical move, it's it's coming up on four decades in Indonesia. So in typical fashion, it's been kind of metabolized by Indonesia or Indonesianized. But I think it has less of a bite now than it would have in the 80s or 90s, um, where in, the, in, the, in those decades, it was common for volunteers to collect money and even recruit people for the Afghan jihad. So it was quite an extreme place. Um, it's changed even in the last three years. They've started hiring um, women teachers um, so my first visit was in 2017 and my last visit was in 2019. Within that time, they started hiring women teachers. They even started a futsal team and they were forced to accept the national Indonesian curriculum mandated by the Ministry of Education. So a lot of changes are happening there quite fast. Um, the first kind of rector of the university I spoke to had no idea what Pancasila was, which is the official political philosophy of Indonesia. In, in theory, every college is supposed to teach Pancasila. Obviously, they didn't care about that. Um, but by the time I went in 2019, it was like much more like pro-Indonesia and accepting of like its Indonesian status. So um, I think a lot of changes are afoot in Libya. That being said, it, it continues to have this kind of long tail of impact in fundamentalist circles. If you guys remember the 2018 uh, Surabaya bombings, the suicide bombings, they, they were the people who did that really awful attack were part of this splinter jihadi group called JAD, Jama Ansar Daula. And the spiritual leader of that group uh, was a Lipia alumna, alumnus and taught at Lipia for several years. And that was really shocking for me to learn because it just shows how like as much as Libya tries to modernize or Indonesianize, it continues to attract a certain type of ideologue. So I think we're gonna to continue to see kind of extreme people like that for a few years at least to come. Yeah. And these attacks by extremists that you that were taught to waste jihad from within Indonesia in the two thousands and, and you mentioned in your book how they actually came under controlled by the government for a period of time in the 2010s, but actually backslide recently. Uh, so where are the remnants of this Salafi jihadist movement in, in, in Indonesia? Is it still there or is it, going to, is it potentially going to form something bigger, would you say? Uh, it's hard. I'm not a futurist. I find that really hard to, I think there's so many contingent factors, right? Um, I think there are a lot of hardline purist Salafis in places like Jogja and Lombok. 
um, who are not necessarily political or jihadists. In terms of jihadists, for a few years, a lot, a few of them were channeling their um, their impulses into doing hijra and, and moving to Syria to join ISIS. So I think about 600 people did that and, and several hundred more tried to do that. Um, and in terms of Salafi jihadism, it's really hard to tell what the future holds. I think there's probably quite a few cells um, still still active. And IPAC does a lot of great reports on some of these latent cells. But in Indonesia, I think it's, it's numerically, it remains such a small phenomenon in a country of this many people that anything that happens to me is almost like anomalous at this point. And it's very hard to predict what's going to happen next. Yeah, yeah. And um, in terms of, you know, that whole clash between having an Indonesian identity and probably this will interest my colleagues at the Institute is, and you mentioned Arabisasi, you know, how is that, that clash between having an Indonesian identity with, in face of, you know, Arabization and also, you know, with the influence of the Saudi doctrine, how, how has it been, been fluctuating or transforming or evolving? I think it's always like a, a push and pull. I think that the, the discourse around Arapisasi that crystallized in like the last decade or so for sure has been kind of this like reaction to the idea of foreign influence. And I think especially like a formerly colonized nation like Indonesia is always wary of like undue foreign influence. Um, but I, I think that the operative dynamic here is like this high metabolism of the Indonesian religious sphere to absorb a lot of these influences. So there was a period in, in the late 20th century where there really was a lot of new ideas coming in from Saudi. But I think at this point, we're at a stage where um, the Salafi communities have kind of found their own feet and maybe they will look to Saudi clerics to, to get justifications for their fatwas, um, and things like that. And as I write in my book, Saudi remains a very popular branding choice among consumer goods and things like that. So like, there's a lot of prestige still associated with Saudi. But I, I think, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it, groups that have become just, it's typical that they become less extreme over the course of time. And the Prosperous Justice Party is a great example of this, right? They started out as a Muslim Brotherhood inspired, really regimented political party that wanted Indonesia to become a caliphate. That was their platform. And they've really backed off on all of that because it was not that popular with voters. So they're still the most pop successful Islamist party in Jakarta, which by the way, heavily supported by Saudi alumni and so on. Um, but they they have like backed off on a lot of their positions and even have a lot of women politicians in their party now. Yeah, sure. And you talked about you talked a bit about how the clerics still look up to the fatwas that come from Saudi Arabia. And interestingly, what I found in your book is that the Indonesian Muslim Clerics Council, which you mentioned, was only only appeared halfway throughout the through your book. And you mentioned how uh, Saudi Dawah resulted in uh, religious intolerance in the form of uh, anti Ahmadiyya crackdowns and 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 anti-Shia crackdowns. So how influential is this council in Indonesia? Well, you know, and, and the Majlis Salama Indonesia was a new order creation of Suharto to kind of like 
domesticate the clerical establishment. So that that's part of the reason they only appear halfway through my book. Um, I think, unfortunately, MUI has been an instrument of some of the worst intolerances in Indonesia. So I have written in my book, as you mentioned, about how they really mainstreamed some of the virulent anti-Shia sentiments, anti-Ahmadiyya sentiments that were propagated initially by Saudi Dawa. I mean, MUI helped convene a, a seminar at Jakarta's Istiqlal Mosque on whether Shia should exist in Indonesia. That's like so beyond the pale of what we can expect from a quote-unquote tolerant Muslim country's establishment, and yet that's the kind of stuff they are endorsing. So MUI has always had a kind of conservative bent, uh, in my opinion, and they've amplified some of these ideas uh, to a national level. Yeah, yeah. And one interesting fact that you actually put out in your book, and I think this might interest our Singaporean uh, viewers here, is about Batam, which is the island just across uh, Singapore that we can get to by, by a ferry easily. And you said Batam is an example of a Salafi ecosystem. And how did you find out about this and, and what was your experience on, on the island? I learned about Batam from a really wonderful Indonesian researcher named Din Wahid, who works at uh, UIN in Chiputat. Um, and uh, he had written a great paper about this Salafi radio station based in Batam. And it seemed pretty random, at least in terms of my mental map of what Salafism in Indonesia looked like. Um, it's like a special economic zone, very close to Singapore. Um, and it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have so much to recommend it, to be honest. It's kind of sleazy and has duty-free shopping. So I went there, I just want to see what it's about. And I was really interested to see, like, there were so many different nodes of Salafi little Salafi um, influence on this little island. Um, so there was, first of all, this influential Salafi radio station called Hong Radio um, that has listeners from all across Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore and broadcasts um, like sermons and visiting guest preachers and things like that, like 20 hours a day. Um, pretty impressive. And they showed me around their um, recording headquarters in downtown Batam. It was pretty impressive. It was started by a local businessman. Um, and it's a very influential media outlet. And Batam has, because of this outlet, become a crossroads of Salafis from across the Nusantara region, um, including those from Singapore. And I also found, so that's kind of like this one media outward focused arm. I also found though, in this neighborhood called Chandana, um, this whole neighborhood had kind of overnight become completely Salafi. You go from Batam, really, it's like a holiday island. Um, yeah. And then suddenly in this part of central Batam, everyone is wearing um, a niqab, not even a burqar. It's like very suddenly Salafi and all the men are dressed as Salafis. And there was even a Salafi, there are actually at least two Salat Pesantran there. I only went to one called Pesantran Sunnah. And I went there and I interviewed the head of the school. But it's not like a big school. It's not like washed in Saudi money, right? It's a bare bones Salafi school. But it was started by this, uh, this guy named Wildan from Aceh who had gone to Saudi Arabia on a scholarship, become Zalafi, and he came back with support from Saudi to start the school here. And um, he was one of the most extreme Salafis I've ever met in my life. He refused to meet me in person. We had to do the interview in this room with a partition where he would sit on one side. I would sit on the other side with like a female minder and he would pass me some books through this partition. And it was just so... Um, it was so wild to me that like this, this too was, was what Saudi Dawa did. It took this kind of probably young pious guy from Aceh and turned him into one of the most committed hardline Salafis I've ever met and living in Batam of all places. Wow. I mean, at least he did manage to, you, you did manage to get your answers, your 
that you wanted from him, <laughs> did you? Yeah. Um, so now we have a few questions. I think it's, it's in the backlog of, of questions that we had in the chat. And the first one from K1, uh, what is the Saudi influence in Malaysia like? Was it more direct through, through direct funding or indirect via Indonesia? Um, they definitely had, they definitely had and still have a Dawah office and a Saudi religious attache in Malaysia. So it's definitely direct. Uh, I think something interesting about Malaysia is that Salafi ideas have become even a lot more mainstream than in, in politics than in Indonesia, in the sense that like UMNO and a lot of the Malay political organizations um, have mainstream Salafi ideas much more than than you know like one of many parties in indonesia so and also they have this kind of existing dynamic where malays in malaysia have to follow sharia so there's more of instruments to have these ideas operate in like if you have sharia courts that's easier to operate some of these takfiri ideas in um and uh malaysia is also home to this like saudi funded university called medu which started very recently i want to say early 2000s and it's kind of like this online alternative to Libya um, which is funded by Saudi Arabia and it um, it's become a kind of good alternative for people who don't get these Libya scholarships to get a Saudi education but it's mostly virtual and that's in Malaysia too and one of my favorite uh, things that happen in Malaysia is that there's like three big counter extremism projects in Malaysia funded by Saudi and um, when Mahathir became prime minister again a while back, if you can remember, because these things keep changing. Um, one of the things he did was he just shut down this counter extremism center in Putrajaya because he's like, what does Saudi have to, what does Saudi know about a counter extremism center? It just makes no sense for us. And he closed it and like made a big statement that way. I thought that was pretty amusing because the world is indeed today full of Saudi funded counter extremism and pluralism and moderation centers. And the, the irony at the heart of this has been hard for a lot of people to voice, but I thought it was funny that Malaysians did that. And they were like, kind of aware that Saudi is doing counter extremism center here. We're going to shut it down. Um, I thought that was pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. And, and you said the world is full of, of Saudi money all over the place. And we've got one question here from Jamie Davidson again. His question is, in a cost-benefit analysis, would the Saudis say their money has been well spent in, in Indonesia? Or has the bang for their buck been frustratingly small? That's a great question. I think they got a lot. I think they got a lot of bang for their buck. They succeeded more than they could have ever imagined. I mean, um, I think Ulil Abshar Abdallah put it best, a liberal Islamic intellectual in Indonesia, where he said, DDII, which is the main instrument of Saudi money in Indonesia, has both lost and won. They've become so successful, ideas-wise, as to become redundant. So a lot of the Saudi instruments, right, like, like DDII, for example, they don't get Saudi funding anymore, but they don't need to because a lot of things they advocated for are so mainstream now. I mean, the fact that there is an, a national anti-Shia league in Indonesia is insane. There's not even that many Shia people, fewer than 1% in Indonesia. Um, this idea directly came out of Saudi propaganda in the 1980s. So the fact that, you know, that kind of thing is mainstream now, um, that a lot of Takafiri ideas are, are quite widely accepted now. Um, there's a lot of intolerance of religious minorities. Again, I'm not saying these things directly came from Saudi only, but the fact that these ideas are so mainstream now is, I think, a huge bang for their buck. And they're not even spending that much money here anymore. It's, it's quite, I think it's quite minimal and decreasing every day. 
Yeah, sure. We can take one or two more questions from our listeners. If anyone wants to put forward a question, you can raise your hand or write through the chat. Um, I think Paul Freeland is raising their hand. Oh yeah, hello there. Um, I just I, I know earlier you said you're not a futurist, but uh, I, I, at the same time, I would be curious about where you see like the future of like the Saudi soft power uh, efforts. Because like uh, as we've seen like recently, like, the the bottom has dropped out of the oil the uh, oil price, and I think we just uh, recently I think this, the the uh, Saudis announced like they're like the you're tripling the VAT and like huge spending cuts all over the place. Um, and yet at the same time, we're seeing things like uh, the, the purchase of Newcastle United is still going forward and, and other <laughs> such things like that. So I, do you, is this, are these soft, soft power efforts something that, that is still going to be worthwhile for Saudi, do you think? Or is this, is this going to be one of the, the victims of the cutbacks as they try to uh, endure or try to wait it out until the oil price gets to $50 a barrel again, if it ever does? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's definitely decreasing. Like it, officials in the Saudi Dawa Ministry, which is the government agency that's responsible for a lot, though not all of these efforts, have indicated that since MBS came to power, they've had fewer resources than before. So there's and there's been, you know, according to reports that I analyzed for my book, there's been a, a drop off every single year in the last five years in in material um, uh, investments abroad for. Dawa stuff. So I think it's been on the decline for a while. The 2014 oil crash, you know, was already a pretty, pretty significant one for them and to say nothing of what's going on now. Um, and I think it's pretty obvious within, within Vision 2030 that Dawa is not the biggest priority anymore. I, I know that I'm sure the Wahhabi clerics feel differently, but it's pretty obvious that under MBS's administration, Dawa is not the main priority. So I'm expecting some material, further material uh, losses to Dawa project worldwide after after this pandemic year. All right, thank you. We've got another question from Omar Alatas. What is your experience of the South, Saudi Salafi influence in as well as through Singapore? Um, I don't know that much about Salafis in Singapore, unfortunately. I do know that there's um, a quite uh, quite vibrant Salafi uh, media sphere that passes through, for example, Batam. That's the extent of my in interaction with them for the most part. But I will say that one thing common among Southeast Asian nations that have Salafism is um, that there's a lot of movement between countries. So like in deep South Thailand, um, Ismail Lutfi, who's the, who's the main Salafi there, who almost single-handedly started the Salafi movement, has spent a lot of time traveling through all the other Southeast Asian countries, um, including Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, and so on. So there was a lot of movement between them. So I think, you know, some of these circles, um, uh, especially like JE adjacent circles, did pass through Singapore. Sure, and the follow-up is, are there private as well as state financial institutions in Southeast Asia structured to specifically fund the Salafi agenda? Private as well as state-funded. I mean, yeah, I I mean, I, I would question the use of the word agenda. Again, I feel like it's really important for us to not think of this too much as like a 
super coherent project. I think there are many Salafisms in Southeast Asia now. Some of them have been mainstreamed in places like Malaysia, where a lot of um, you know, Amno and uh, Pas are full of Salaf committed Salafis. I would say that's a good example of state-absorbed Salafisms. Um, and then in terms of privatization, sure, like all, almost all the nonprofits are technically private, right? Like DDII, Muslim World League, um, World Assembly of Muslim Youth, and, and most of these schools are also private institutions. So I'd say, yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a mix. Yeah. So thank you from Omar Alatas. That was your question there. Hope, hope Critica answered your question. So we'll move to, into Nigeria and Kosovo. And if you've got questions out there, hold that thought and we can try to address them at the end of, of these two case studies. So on Nigeria, you talked about within a decade of Saudi-Nigeria partnership, the Saudis created the Izala movement uh, of preserving virtue and, and decided that Sharia should be implemented in, north, in the north since 1999. And you spoke about Boko Haram, which was only prominent in the, in the late 2000s and, and things like this. But my question really is about with the growing influence of, of Izala leaders who threw their support um, behind one of the gov governors and drove home the implementation of Sharia, how did the climate change in, in society and what happened to the self-declared 65% of Sufis uh, that you mentioned, you know, that make up the majority. And are there also incidents of clashes with the Christian South in Nigeria? Mm -hmm. I mean, for the, to take the last question first, of, of course, absolutely, the, you know, in the middle belt of Nigeria. So for those of you who don't know, Nigeria is, is the most densely populated country in Africa, and the northern part is mostly Muslim, the southern part is mostly Christian. And there's a very contentious middle belt where these overlap and there's a lot of conflicts um, between them. I mostly focused on northern Nigeria uh, for my case study, and I, I spent a lot of time in Kano, which is a big city there on the edge of the Sahel Desert. Um, and you know what Clemens is talking about is, um, Saudi Arabia picked Nigeria very early on as a good partner in its project in the 1960s and sent one of the first delegations from the Islamic University of Medina out to Nigeria to handpick, um, you know, they picked Ahmadu Bella, who was the premier of Northern Nigeria, as a good partner in their project. And they started very modestly just by giving quite a few scholarships to Medina and kind of cultivating this class of Salafi scholars. And they also gave a lot of money to a one man named Abu Bakr Gumi, who was kind of like the Muhammad Natsir of Nigeria. He was a kind of right-hand man, an Islamic scholar, right-hand man to the premier of Northern Nigeria. And he was given a pretty big carte blanche to do whatever he wanted with the Saudi money. They would go to the kingdom every single year, um, Bello and Gumi, uh, which points to what you were saying about the importance of Hajj and Umrah. And uh, he used his money to take on a very vocal anti-Sufi platform. So within a decade, between this very charismatic figure of Gumi and this new class of Saudi-educated Salafi scholars, there, there came together this new movement called Izala, which was this very combative Salafi movement um, that was very anti-Sufi, um, which is the main tradition in, in this part of Western Africa. 
Um, they really attacked them for their hierarchical structures um, and their practices that they considered idolatrous, um, like you know using charms and going to shrines and things like that. Um, they were they were really good at mass media, like radio, and giving little sermons um, that would be recorded as cassette tapes and so on. So Izala became surprisingly popular and very quickly amassed this base across northern Nigeria. They built tons of mosques, um, and which created this impression that they were flush with Saudi money. So that, that also helped people get drawn to their movement. Um, so Izala was quite successful, but as is the case in Indonesia, with some time, the, it lost its bite. Too. So Izala slowly became more and more mainstream as more members became politicians and so on. So then this group broke off from Izala called Ahlu Sunnah, which was a slightly more uh, extreme Salafi movement in the 90s. And then the early 2000s, yet another slightly more, more extreme Salafi movement broke out called Boko Haram, which I'm sure is familiar to everyone here today. Um, so this was this case in, in Nigeria where I 100% don't think that Boko Haram was in any way an intended byproduct of Saudi Arabia's in interest in Nigeria when they started giving these scholarships back in the 1960s. Um, they were probably happy at one point that Salafism was taking root there, but this was really like agency on the part of the Nigerian scholars who were creating these movements and giving them life. But it quickly spiraled out of control in Nigeria in a way that I can only describe as characteristic. Um, because it's not a straight line, but the fact is when you create such a big pool of Salafis in such a short period of time in a country like this, um, an extremist fringe often tends to break off. And in this case, it was Boko Haram. So, you know, I think Nigeria is just a really interesting case study of what happens when you open this can of worms into an impressionable country, starting with something as innocuous as scholarships, and it eventually creates this whole other, you know, awful um, group that has been responsible for some of the most heinous crimes um, on the African continent. Yeah, and, and the same Boko Haram that you mentioned actually received financial aid from the Saudis, but quickly switched allegiance and, and they rebranded themselves as the Islamic State in, in West Africa. And, and they consider the kingdom, Saudi kingdom, as a state of uh, unbelief. So how is Saudi responding to this? How do they view this jihadi group from their perspective? I mean, I think they, they think it's a nightmare. Um, uh, you know, like... 9-11 was bad for Saudi, right? Because this idea of Salafi jihadism was suddenly the biggest, it was, everyone knew about it. And a lot of people blame Saudi for it. What many people don't know is that Salafi jihadism became a problem for Saudi too. Um, in 2003 and 2004, Al-Qaeda attacked targets inside the kingdom, um, you know, killing thousands of people in these residential compounds. It was like Saudi's own 9-11. So for much of this century, Saudi Arabia has been, I mean, Salafi jihadism has been almost as much of a headache for Saudi Arabia as it has been for any other country, because Al-Qaeda has threatened their own country and so on. So I think that they, um, you know, it's a mutual mutual dislike that Boko Haram thinks Saudi Arabia is in a state of unbelief, and they've released many polemical videos attacking Saudi Arabia for not being sufficiently Islamic, and Saudi Arabia probably regards Boko Haram as... Um, another example of a of this kind of jihadi, this kind of like disastrous effect of one of their investments. They do think about it that way at all. Saudi Arabia was briefly the site of this mediation between the Nigerian president and and Boko Haram, which 
failed. But, you know, I, I think they probably regard each other mutually with dislike. Yeah. And moving on to Kosovo, um, and I want to draw some comparisons because uh, you mentioned Aceh in, in Indonesia. Aceh received Saudi humanitarian aid after the 2004 tsunami. And, and you have Aceh on the one hand and you have Kosovo on the other, where Saudi charities also came to Kosovo's aid in the post-Yugoslav uh, wars mm -hmm. to help out in post-war reconstruction. But the results were different. Uh, on 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 the Archie side, you know, they they prefer to to sort of reject the the Saudi doctrine, and and in Kosovo it was the exact opposite. How do you explain, um, you know, the different results? You know, I think the main difference is just that like so much of history is contingent, um, and that's why I think it's important to look at things on a case by case basis. Um, I I think uh, you know Archie was almost unique in Indonesia for its ability to uh, voice its unique Islamic identity. The traditional ulama of Aceh have a very strong regional identity um, and have certain practices they feel very strongly about. And they also have this strong regional identity because they spend a lot of their time trying to be independent of Indonesia. So they're used to kind of regarding any outside influences with kind of uh, with suspicion and remove, which is why um, the Achenese mounted such a large uh, protest and even violent evictions of Salafis who came to Aceh in the wake of the, the awful tsunami. They really would not stand to be taken advantage of even after this awful disaster happened. And that was their perception. They were like, we'll take Saudi charity, we'll take your schools, orphanages, and so on, but you can't try to change our Islamic culture because that's what we're most proud of. And, and Achenese often call themselves they call Aceh Mecca's veranda. They're very proud that it's one of the first places where anecdotally Islam came to Southeast Asia and um, they're very proud of their traditions. So I think, you know, it wasn't predetermined, but some of these factors make sense in retrospect why they were able to mount this kind of response. But again, you know, it just shows how like history is made up of so many accidents. Like maybe a few vocal leaders would have you know, what if they had died in the tsunami and they hadn't been able to mobilize this response? Or what if um, Saudi had pushed back more, more um, subtly or planted more, you know, different kinds of charity? There are just so many variables there. But I think it is important to know the Aceh case just to show that Saudi money is not like a one-way path, being like money to Salafis. Like there's so many ways it could go. Kosovo, on the other hand, um, you know, uh, Saudi money started there uh, during the Kosovo War in in December 1998, that's when the Saudi relief planes first started flying to Kosovo. Um, and the Saudi charities continue to stay there throughout um, Kosovo's independence, uh, during its intermediary status as a UN-administered territory, and up until 2008 when Kosovo finally declared its independence from Serbia, which is still not completely recognized today. So Kosovo is kind of a, a, a partially recognized country. A lot of big countries like Russia still do not recognize its statehood. So Kosovo obviously went through this incredibly traumatic war that only ended with the NATO bombing. And, um, and the US and, and NATO and UN were the big presences there. But the problem was they did not really give a thought to the religious life of this community at all. Even though part of the Kosovo War was that Serb forces um, used minarets as target practice. They targeted uh, Kosovar imams for murder. Um, and before that, uh, religious life was 
pretty suppressed in communist Yugoslavia. And, and despite all of this, despite how vulnerable this population was, the UN and the US both were not super interested in helping rebuild religious life who was, of course, were the Saudis. So that was like a really natural entry point for Saudi charity to help um, this, this uh, really traumatized Muslim population uh, find some kind of way to express their faith. So it's not a coincidence that when a modest religious revival took place in Kosovo, which is 98% Muslim, by the way, um, it took on a Saudi flavor. And, and that's also why, um, in, within record time, within 20 years, Salafism found such a huge base in the Albanian-speaking world, so much so that there's like Albanian Salafi media um, in in Pristina. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because in all your case studies, you know, it almost takes some time, one or two decades, for actually for the Saudi Dawa to actually follow through uh, to end up in some kind of product, actually, uh, whether in a movement or whether in you know reaching to another region reaching another province and and it's very very clear that there are also breeding grounds for potential breeding grounds for uh, religious fervor in in that sense so i will preserve some time for our uh, viewers out there with their questions because i had my fair share of questions 